Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, here with my super amazing co-host, Alan McGirt. Oh, I love that introduction. You know that, Alan. Thank you so very much. And I also love it that you are not a robot for reasons <laughs> that we're going to discover with our next guest. Yeah, he's he's the man who founded a company in Romania back in 2005, took the company public this past April. His name is Daniel Dines, and he is the CEO of UiPath. That's right. And this is where I'm going to get technical on everybody. UiPath is an enterprise software company. Its specific product is something I didn't know a lot about before we spoke to Daniel. It's called RPA for Robotic Process Automation. It's a way of automating all kinds of workflow things that promise big-time efficiencies in all sorts of workplace tasks, saving time and money. Or as they like to put it, we make software robots so people don't have to be robots. And it's worth mentioning the company has grown like crazy. Here's just one example. Last quarter revenue, up 65%. You know, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to Daniel, I mean, he's a, he's a fascinating entrepreneur and a rapidly growing company. But I think robotic process automation is really at the center of a great debate about the future of work. Daniel makes the argument that this empowers workers. It gives them a new tool. But there's some people out there who worry that companies are are simply using it to automate office processes and are going to leave more people out of jobs. And I, right. I, I think that's why this is worth some attention and why we wanted to talk about it today. So, Daniel, we have so much to talk about, but, but let's start with the basics. Ex- explain to our listeners what RPA is and what it does. RPA stands for Robotic Process Automation, which is a form of business process automation that aims to automate manual routine tasks that knowledge workers are performing in front of their computers. We have taken a rather different approach to any other automation techniques in the sense that uh, we are emulating human users. Whatever they can do on their computers, as long as it's uh, rule-driven, as it is routine, repetitive, our robots will be able to emulate. And let me just follow up on that quickly, because I, I want to get right to an issue that concerns a lot of people when they hear that explanation for the first time. You know, we've already had robots in factories displace human workers. Now you're talking of putting robots on clerical computers that displace clerical workers. And people look at that and say, oh, all you're doing is eliminating jobs. How do you respond to that? I would not concur with the word displace. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> we enhance jobs. So if you look at most of the knowledge worker jobs, they consist of a series of tasks. Some of them are highly repetitive in nature, and these are the ones that we can automate. But many others are much more strategic, are about communication, are about social skills, empathy, creativity, strategic thinking. So we've believed that automation throughout history has actually transformed jobs. 
it has really eliminated completely your job. Ellen, I, I, I'm going to keep with this one more question. I apologize. You, you go, because Ellen, I, I, I think it's really important to get this down. I really get what you're saying, Daniel. But at the end of the day, it's up to the company. And I've seen some evidence that a lot of companies are simply using RPA to automate things they were already doing and not transform their companies. You have the power to transform business, but it's not always clear that people are using your technology to do true transformation. So how do you help encourage that? True transformation is kind of a byproduct of automating these tasks. It follows the automation because people will have more time to dedicate to other sorts of tasks. So we, we, we have not seen really massive unemployment as the result of automation. On the contrary, I think that given the existing circumstances in the world, which is uh, really a shortage for high-skilled workers, and the uh, aging of the population in many countries. Actually, we create an environment where businesses can easily hire people. There is a generational gap between younger people and more of the more experienced people. And younger people will not take, in many instances, the jobs of the people that are about to retire right now. Mm -hmm. So actually create a better environment for companies to be able to get these people, to train them faster, to get them to do more jobs that they like. I want to bring up the other thing that we ask about all the time with automation and AI and bots and all of that amazing new technology, which is bias. We've had a long series of important conversations about the data sets that automated functions use, about bias being baked into all kinds of systems and thinking. And I'm curious how you think about that and how you address it. I think we all uh, admit that, you know, we are all biased in many ways and we have to fight against biases. Actually, one of my uh, leadership message to everyone in UiPath is you have to fight your biases, not only gender biases or diversity biases, but you have to fight all your biases. There is this cognitive bias where people get more attached to their ideas and they admit only facts that confirm their ideas. So this is really bad. That puts companies into a corner. Now, I know that you are uh, thinking more of training data sets that contains inner biases. Right. Well, we as a company are a bit in a more fortunate position where what we are training our robots for doesn't have uh, inherent biases into the training set because it's more like our software is more like a self-driving car. So we train our software with things that exist on the screen. So we, we look at many applications like, I don't know, SAP, Salesforce, and so on. So by using so many instances of how people work, this is how we train it. There is no inherent bias in the screens, in the user interface mm. of the applications. 
Daniel, I want to introduce our listeners to the Daniel Dine story because it's a fascinating story. I mean, take us back. You were born in Bucharest at a time that the Iron Curtain was still standing. Uh, you initially wanted to be a writer, not a technologist. And now suddenly you find yourself running and largely owning a, I don't know what it is today, $35 billion company. You're a billionaire with thousands of employees and offices in New York City. Tell us a little bit about that journey. This is indeed. So I was born in a communist country with really little information from outside. We didn't have even access to too much television. If you can imagine, we had like only two hours television a day, and that was all full of political bullshit. But in terms <laughs> we have a fair amount of that, more than two hours. <laughs> Maybe it's a great new policy, limit political <laughs> television to two hours. Anyway, so in turn, that helped me to really get into reading, and I attribute a lot to my formation to the books that I was reading. So I wanted to become a, a writer, really. One of the biggest inspiration for me early on uh, was uh, an American book called Martin Eden. The author is Jack London. So in this book, he was telling the story of a guy of a kind of poor conditions that, you know, aspire to become a writer and overcome his condition. So it was, I was really much inspired by uh, that book. But in the context of that communist country, that was really not possible. You cannot, it was very difficult to make a career <laughs> as a writer. To me, math was also always coming a little bit uh, easier. So I really enjoy solving math problems. So I ended up going to university studying math and uh, computer science. And that was a good choice, I think, because later on in my career, I, uh, I got an employment offer from Microsoft. So when I was uh, like 28, I moved to Seattle, and I worked for Microsoft five years. And then I, I decided to go back to Romania and start this company, which, again, I, it's a bit of a crazy idea, especially at that time, Romania was not even part of European Union. So it was pretty much the Wild West. <laughs> but I, I found a few really good engineers that work with me, around the years and we are and we were at that time very passionate about uh, this computer vision technology that powers our robots and eventually we have found product market fit in around 2014 and then we have started raising capital and in the past six years i believe we are one of the fastest ever growing enterprise software companies out there. And you serve a huge portion of the Fortune 500. Yes, right. we have more than like 63% of Fortune 500 and eight out of Fortune 10. And we have customers across the world from Japan, Singapore, Europe, US, South America. There is no really developed country where we don't have customers and an office. Take us back to 2014 and dig in a little bit there. When did you know that this was going to work or strongly suspect that this was going to work? 
We um, traditionally we were selling our software to other uh, software engineers. So our tool was mostly used by engineers. So we got this BPO company coming to us saying that they want to use our technology to automate the supply chain process in a delivery center. And they asked us for help. And it was one of the best decisions that I sent three of my best people. So one, uh, our CTO and the, the two women founders. So they went together in India, spent there like three months understanding the use case, you know, adapting a bit our product to that use case. And we won the customer and we actually understood that this is a very large opportunity. There are so many inefficiencies in the business process world. And we, from that moment on, we really focused the product development on to automating these manual repetitive tasks. And we, we followed uh, quickly with uh, an initial seed round that we raised from uh, local, more Central Eastern European VCs, but uh, after that, we expanded globally easily. We raised funds from Excel, from Sequoia, and later on from big uh, crossover funds like Co2, Tiro, and the rest is the history that you know. <laughs> I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us and thanks for your support of our second season. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, one of the surprises we saw in 2020 in the midst of a lot of bad news was some good news, an acceleration in the adoption of digital technology. Do you think that's going to continue once the pandemic goes away? I do, Alan, and I would say that the cause for optimism is warranted. There are going to be some pretty significant dividends that come from the massive acceleration in all things digital. And as we move into a post-pandemic world, we're going to see significant benefits to the economy from the big digital transformation investments the companies are making. I think we're going to see big benefits to people in terms of quality of life as we see new models for working that allow greater flexibility, greater productivity. So on the whole, I'm pretty optimistic that there's a path out of this and that as we emerge, that there will be some bright spots, albeit coming from a pretty dark moment in time. So people were forced to innovate in 2020 because an extreme change of circumstances was forced upon them. But can they keep up that pace of innovation? Well, that's the challenge for all of us as leaders. I saw a great quote in one of your interviews recently, Alan, that in this period of time, change was free because the alternative to change was even worse. We all have to look back on the way in which we moved so quickly, we broke some glass, we didn't let corporate bureaucracy get in the way, and it actually benefited all of us significantly and leverage that mindset going forward to act more quickly, to be less inhibited by risk, and to see the true benefit of embedding digital transformation and an agile mindset within the way that our organizations operate on a go-forward basis. Joe, thank you.
Daniel, you, there are a number of big players in this robotic process automation market. UiPath, Automation Anywhere, Blue Prism are the names you hear most often. What distinguishes UiPath? What's enabled you to grow so fast? When you're telling someone why they should choose you over the other two, what's your argument? The term RPA was barely coined like in 2014, many customers were looking to understand the technology and they were conducting POCs, pilots, and they usually took these three companies that you mentioned and automating kind of the same process. You know, take one process and automate it in all the three technologies. And they discovered that most of the time we are able to automate the process in uh, half time and it's working more reliably. So that means that it really reduces the time to market and reduces the cost of implementation, which is still very big in our industry. Mm -hmm. So multiply the cost of one process to hundreds of processes. So you get to a huge differentiator. And this is why our licensing cost was never an issue. We have seen many competitors coming with free software, but if you are able to show what the difference in return on investment, our software versus free or whatever produces, it's no brainer. I wanted to ask you about your experience with venture capital. You've been enormously successful and in part because of your enormous capacity and vision and the trajectory of the company. But you don't strike me as a person who fits the profile of a typical CEO that people invest in. If someone was going to pattern match, <laughs> I don't think they would find you in that pattern. Can you talk a little bit about how you run the company and what your experience in venture was like? This is absolutely true. I, I don't pattern <laughs> myself in that category. So I was kind of in, in early on, I was kind of pretty stressed talking to investors, you know, for very <laughs> unexperienced founders, you see them like sharks, they are trying to get your company that you love. So it's, uh, it's all, it's a bit of a tension, but I knew really that they are really smarter than me. So if I'm trying to pretend I am someone different than I was, that's not gonna fly. So my strategy with this is also, was always to be extremely candid and transparent about my shortcomings, our company shortcomings, and they kind of like it. And they appreciate authenticity a bit more than a very polished and articulate CEO. So I attribute you know, a lot to being myself with them. So I want to circle back to the future of work that you touched on using automated and bot technology to train and upskill people. We spend a lot of time talking about people who have been left out of the workforce or have not been recruited successfully in the past or retained successfully in the past, particularly in the U.S. It's going to be people of color, people with disabilities, visible or invisible, people perhaps from immigrant populations, and a lot of times women of all colors. And I'm curious what you think the role of automated technology can play in bringing these people up to speed on the new knowledge worker skills. And really, more importantly, whether you anticipate that employers will accept this kind of training as a legitimate credential. Yeah, I believe that actually our platform uh, 
can extend the reach for this category of people quite a bit. One of the major pillar of our success was that we kind of reduce a bit the technical skills required to create automations. So we can have a broader spectrum of people being able to understand the technology and being proficient with this. Yeah. I can uh, point you that we recently concluded the partnership with uh, eight historical black colleges mm-hmm. to start training uh, in our technology. And in terms of credentials for a job, this is one of the highest growing job across yeah. all of them. So we have seen consistently on LinkedIn, for instance, like more than 40% growth year over year for this type of uh, jobs like automation engineer, RPA developer. Wow. And and so if I want to be like the botmeister for uh, Fortune or some other company, how much training do I need to be able to figure out how to apply these bots in a successful way? I think that if you have some kind of basic experience with programming concepts, for instance, if you've done a class in college about programming, it's going to take you maybe between uh, two to four months to to be proficient in our technology. So, Alan, does this mean that we're going to have an Alan Murray bot in every meeting? Because I think that's what this means. I think most of what I do could be easily automated, Ellen. I'm (laughs) one of a kind. One of a kind. Not. I know that's coming, but I want to circle back before we let you go, Daniel, to the issue that we talked about at the beginning. I totally buy the argument that by automating dull, repetitive tasks, you're freeing up people to be more creative and think about how they really provide value to a company's customers. That said. I've seen a fair amount of research that say companies aren't really fully taking advantage of that incredible opportunity, that they tend to take bad processes already in place, automate them and go on. And and there's a, a degree of creativity and design thinking that's required to really take full advantage of these incredible technologies that are now in the marketplace. I mean, what can UiPath do to help encourage that creativity and design thinking within companies to get the full potential of what you were unlocking here? I always believe it's much better to put automations on something that exists. So these processes are actually what powers the enterprises today. They work this way. If you can quickly go and automate them, you can actually free the people for the next generation of operations of processes, you you free them for imagining. If they have to do these processes all the time, and they are the subject matter experts, it's not going to be someone, big guy, consultant that will reimagine <laughs> completely the enterprise. It's the people. <laughs> so you need to free them. So to me, it's uh, I say that there are a two speed of innovation in a company. It's a slow innovation and it's a fast innovation. We allow with our fast automation approach, we allow more the slower innovation that requires time to bake it up. But if you don't automate these processes, in the meantime, what you can do, it's there is no other alternative. It's people that are doing them. Right, 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 right. You know, I want to ask you about how you're thinking about work specifically as we slowly and not nearly fast enough exit this pandemic. 
We had Pager Duty CEO Jennifer Tejada on the show. She's amazing. I know she's a board member and she's also a friend. And uh, she's, we talked about that with her. And she mentioned the conversations that you've had with her about bringing people back to the office, specifically about the challenges around hybrid work. She mentioned in particular that your philosophy had inspired her thinking. So I was wondering if you could share some of your thoughts around that, how you think we should reinvent work as we go forward separately and together. Yeah, we, uh, even before uh, the, the start of COVID, uh, we were a company that allowed flexibility at work. We had a policy where every employee is allowed to work from home. They are not supposed to require approval. They were just supposed to send uh, you know, a notice to their manager saying, Today I'm working from home. So we had this policy before. And that prepared us quite well for the pandemic. So we, we, we operated day one very well. And in turn, we helped customers really to cope with it. Now, you know, 18 months after, when we are eyeing reopening our offices, we are looking to change our approach to a more of a hybrid environment. But what I realized at this point, I don't think we have all the answers. Whatever I will say, it's two days a week, it's three days a week, 2.5 days. I think we might be proved wrong. Our uh, approach is really to create a flexible environment that brings joy to the people. I think this is what Jen like. Joy and happiness to the people. And in the same time, preserve their productivity and the interest of the company. So we will, I think, innovate as a company, as, uh, you know, as a business environment, we will see a lot of changes. Yeah. Daniel, I want to ask you as a last question. You know, you, when you were young, you wanted to be a writer. You probably (laughs) correctly concluded that that was not a safe path in a communist country. (laughs) And so you pivoted. But I know from our past conversations that you were a very avid reader. So tell us what you've read recently that you've been impressed with. Give us your, your recommendations. I I'm actually reading right now a book that I planned for a long time. It's called uh, Magic Mountain of uh, Thomas Mann, which is absolutely brilliant. And it's an introspection in life and people that is unparalleled. Yeah, it's I, I haven't read it in a long time. It's a great book. It's a heavy book. I I appreciate your ambition. <laughs> <laughs> I am thirty percent in, so I still have a long. Time. Well, thanks so much for taking that. By the way, have you been to Davos? Because I think that's where Magic Mountain is set. Right now I'm in Switzerland. And oh, I, you are. Okay. <laughs> I actually plan to go Davos this weekend, particularly to see that uh, sanatorium where they actually Oh, my gosh. Uh, that's fabulous. But yeah, I'll let you guys know how it is. Please do let us know. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Alan, Alan, it was a pleasure. It thanks. was a pleasure. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership 
Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 